Lord, thank you so much for just the opportunity to come together to look at your word. It's so amazing, so wonderful, so exciting about how you have inspired it, Lord, and written it down through through men. You've preserved it uh, uh, inerrant and without mistake, and you've preserved it for us all through these centuries and millennia so that we could know you and we could know what you are like, what you say, what you expect, what you were planning to do. And you tell us that, uh, and we'll see some of that tonight. We praise you for it. Thank you, and just uh, please bless our time together as we're looking at it to, to honor you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm, uh, I am excited about these last three, and I've mentioned it to Mark today. And I've, I've studied prophecy, and I've studied Daniel off and on for a lot of years, and um, but this has been the most intensive time to be able to teach. And as I've gotten to, and a lot of it I feel like I've had a pretty good understanding of because there's a lot of teaching out there about it and I've listened to it. But uh, kind of these last three chapters, and especially 10 and 11, I have just not been very clear on for my whole Christian life. And so this has been a great and an exciting time for me to get to get this together, I'll have it down now, have it, have it recorded for myself, <clears throat> to be able to understand better what these last three chapters are about. And so we, we're looking and we're preparing, but tonight chapter 10 is, is preparation for the, this final vision that Daniel's going to have in his, in his book, his writing, his letter that he wrote uh, from God to us. And so we've, we've looked at a lot of other things in the book already, wonderful, amazing visions from God that have put a framework on the future for us. And tonight we're, we're preparing for that final vision that he gives Daniel. So it's a, really it's 10 through 12 is one section. So these three chapters are, they belong together. And that really helps in the understanding of it too as we go through it. Uh, you know, chapters weren't there, like you said this morning, Mark. We it wasn't divided up into chapters and verses. So you're, in some ways, it's it's good to have that. In other ways, it kind of breaks up some of the thoughts that are in there, and especially this. Uh, it's one it's one section that Daniel received from the angel, ten through twelve. We're going to break it up so we can keep it into that kind of hour format. But just keep that in mind as we look through it and as we look through the verses that. Really what this chapter 10 ends up to be is just preparation uh, from God through an angel uh, or maybe a couple of angels to get Daniel ready for that last amazing and important uh, vision that he has that he records for us. So we, we affirm again tonight uh, what we've presented as the theme of the book of Daniel as we keep going here, that God is sovereign over the nations, over the Jew and Gentile nations. He's sovereign over everything. <clears throat> and that is kind of our overarching theme for the book. I mean, it's not ours, it's God's. I mean, God has written through Daniel to show the world and to us that he's in charge. The, the Jews sinned, they got exiled to Babylon, but God was still in charge, even though his people that he'd chosen were being punished for their for their rebellion against him, for their unfaithfulness. Even while they were there, God has proven to these Gentile nations that he's still in charge, and he still is. And so we praise him for that. We love 
what the Bible teaches us about God's sovereignty over all the nations. So we affirm that as we look tonight again at this chapter. Uh, We believe it because God himself has said it to us over and over in his word in the scriptures. And and we want to make sure as we look through this, it talks about his people, my people. Daniel was a Jew, and his people in the context of the book and of the prophecies are Jewish. And so we have to keep that in mind as we look at interpreting and, and learning and knowing what Daniel says to us about God's plan, that God hasn't put this in figurative language per se, because he is talking about the Jewish people here. He, he's not putting it in code so that he really means the church, but he says it's Israel, it's, he says it's the Jews. No. God doesn't do that. He's clear. And he's communicating to us clearly what he says here. And he, he is serious about what he says to us through Daniel, talking about his people. Uh, and so I'll keep that in mind as we continue through these last three chapters, that that's who this is about. It's still about to the Jews. I know, and I mentioned this to Mark this morning, that even as the Jews in the sermon today, the Jews were enraged because Jesus came out said he was the Messiah, but as he compared their faith to the two Gentile examples, that really cut, and they were, they were not happy. They were enraged at Jesus for, for putting it that in that perspective. And I'm almost afraid in our day, as we look back, a lot of uh, critics and different interpreters of Scripture, of the New Testament and of eschatology, almost turn it on its head and say, you know, everything today is about the church. Everything. It's all the Jewish people are done, gone. Anything that we would read in the Old Testament, we're going to switch it over and make it about the church. And that is just wrong. That is not what God had intended. That's not what he had in mind. And so as we look, and there's a, we'll look at this again a little later. In Isaiah, God says it, and through the prophet Isaiah, and this was maybe about oh, maybe 150 years before Daniel. But again, evidence of God who has spoken all of these things. He's written the future in advance. But Isaiah 44 says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. That's pretty clear. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth in a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. There's a ministry in the past of the Jews that was named after that verse, Israel, my glory. And so God has raised up Israel for his glory, this little nation no, nothing to shout about, nothing to boast about, just this little insignificant nation. But it's, it's important because God says so. It's his nation for no other reason except that he said so. And so the whole world and the earth and everything in it, all his creation should rejoice because Israel is redeemed. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. 
God as creator did it all. He has the power within himself to do everything, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness. That sounds kind of familiar, even today. Confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers, it is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I, and this is, this is amazing and important here, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire, and he declares to Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. So again, God proves, and this is a, again 150 years before uh, this comes about, Cyrus, who rules Persia, God's going to use him to, to take care of Israel. He talks about Cyrus, his shepherd, 150 years before. So this statement from God confounds the pride of the Gentile nation. So again, Gentiles who would say, oh, well, we're going to destroy Israel, they still want to do that. It's not going to happen because God says so. So we think even about the prophecies we've already looked at in Daniel and clear back from the start, this whole book of Daniel is about these amazing visions that God has used to build a framework for God's whole plan and future as we look forward to it. We look back even at in chapter 2, those were uh, that was an amazing uh, interpretation of Daniel of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And again, he uses a Gentile king to tell the world what's going to happen in the future. In Daniel 2, 44 and 5, what we had looked at before, it says, in the days of those kings, and I inserted that there just to help us remember where that was, it's the revived Roman Empire, those kings, in the days of those kings, in our future yet, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, talking about all the Gentile nations, past, present, and future, and that includes in our future. He's going to crush them and put an end to all of them, but it will itself endure forever. So that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the future. He's going to crush the world's kingdoms, and it, His kingdom will endure forever. So we know that that's not that hasn't happened in the past. The preterist view would say every, all these, these prophecies happened back before 70 AD. But you can't make a statement like this and make it mean anything. If God's words mean anything, that is the future because this kingdom, when it comes, is never going to be put down again. It's going to be endure forever after that. So it's not here yet. And inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true. Interpretation is trustworthy. So he has already told us the end. We, we know it's true from him. It's coming. But so tonight as we get ready for this last vision, mainly this chapter is about encouragement to Daniel through some angel visions to be ready for this last part. And so I think I passed it already, but that outline, and it, you know, it's just there to, to show that I've at least done my homework and that I, uh, I've 
I've looked through what the sections of this chapter are about, and at least to me it helps me to, to divide it up in a way that makes sense. And so it kind of it looks about, first of all, just an introduction. Daniel prepares to receive the vision, and then he, I say he encounters the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that. That's not dogmatic about that part, but we'll talk about it. His response is unconsciousness. A couple of verses talking about that. And then three helps that Daniel receives to be ready for this vision. He he's crashes three times, and he has to get helped three times to get back up and to be ready to hear that, that uh, vision that we'll start with next week is, is actually the visions that we see. But this week is kind of angelic preparation, and so we'll talk a little bit about angels tonight. There's, and even, even saying that word, I, I just remembered something that I didn't hunt down that I wanted to. <clears throat> but I'll just make a, a general reference to it as we go through it. So let's start. We'll, uh, and a, one other thing to note then as we go about this is that uh, this one is something that came through to me in some of the, the studying and, and teaching I'd heard about was that the, the events that we'll see, especially in, in chapter 11 next week and in the start of 12, really cover things that happen in that intertestamental period. We talk about the silent years between Malachi, the last prophet's words from God, and then John the Baptist and the, and the New Testament the Gospels. There's that 400-year period, and it's like he's, God is silent. But actually, God, through Daniel, is, tells all about what happens in that time frame in between the two testaments in chapter 11. And it's really awesome to see how God has, again, written history in advance to tell in detail what happens in that intertestamental period. So that's what we'll look at next week in detail. So anyway, let's start with verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and again, think back about that, that prophecy we heard in Isaiah. Here he is. Uh, he is three years into his kingship over Persia, Daniel serving him in his kingdom. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true, one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. So I love, I, and more and more as I study, I love how the Holy Spirit has tied his words to the reality of history. Historians, apart from the Bible, they don't care about the Bible, they don't believe the Bible, a lot of them care about what it says, but as decent historians and honest men at least, they go back and they, they uh, chart out what history was. They go back and they look into these historical realities of kings and kingdoms and back and forth. And we're going to see again in detail next week how amazing that is to watch this line up with history. In fact, critics get all upset about it because it's so precise that they would just say, oh, that can't be written in advance. That that's just a, a phony, phony piece of paper there that they wrote after the fact because it's so accurate. No, it's God's truth beforehand. He is God. He wrote it ahead of time. So I just love how God's Word and the things that are written in there line up with true history, and it just it gives you confidence in what God has done and what He's written and what He's preserved for us. There's you know some cults out there that try and write their own history, that, and you go... And it really, it just undercuts the whole 
premise of their false religion. I mean, they say, well, it happened. It just, there's no record of it. But here it all is. But, and you know, God's word is his word, but it still has to couple up with reality because otherwise he's not God. He's not told us the truth. If, if we look out in the world and uh, the planet's flat and he said it's round, then it couldn't be true. But he doesn't. He gives us everything true in advance in his word and it lines up with what we see in reality. In fact, that's what gives us a lot of confidence because we, if the Spirit of God works in your heart and you know the truth according to Scripture and you look out in the world, you have a better handle on what's real out there than the world does. They are confused about what reality is. God cuts through it and tells us the truth and we can see it clearly what's going on. So that's, that is a blessing that He brings to us through His Word and through His Spirit. So this first verse is kind of just like a formal title because it's written in the third person and then in verse 2 it starts in first person. So verse 1, kind of a, an, an introduction or even a title to the document, the three chapters that he's going to write here. Probably just a formal, kind of a formal title. It introduces the vision that we're going to see 10 through 12. And this, this final vision is the, his final one before his death. Daniel's probably about 85 years old by now. Borrowed time, even according to God's word, he tells us how, how what we can expect for life. Some make it a little longer, a lot of them not nearly that long. So 85 years is, you know, your life expectation at 85 has to include the fact that, you know, I don't have a lot of time left on this earth. And I think even the angel probably knew that Daniel would not live to see the end of all these prophecies. Although, thankfully, he did live to see uh, the, the fulfillment of Jeremiah's. <clears throat> and so we've talked about that before. Uh, the, uh, the, the depth of, of Daniel's heart for this, this 70-year exile and return. And when we looked at uh, chapter 9, we saw Daniel's heart in that as he prayed fervently for God to fulfill his promise of the 70-year captivity and then delivery back to the land of Israel. And so this is, as we looked at the verse 1, it says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And so that, he, Cyrus had already given the word for uh, Jews to go back to Israel and start rebuilding. He'd said, go ahead. And so that's, that's another fulfillment of God's prophecy promised in 70 years. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, the fact that it's possible that there was two... Uh, overlapping kind of 70 year of when they would go back and when the temple would rebuilt, be rebuilt. And so that's a possibility of why, why Daniel uh, is mourning here. But so in verses 2 and 3, Daniel says, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. And I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. So I don't know if you could call that fasting, because he did eat, and you know he he drank water, so he, it wasn't like he he starved himself, but he just uh, um, did not give himself any comfort whatever, so that he could focus on and God. And we see that as a pattern with Daniel. I mean, uh, we looked at chapter nine, and and again he was fasting and praying because he was serious about wanting to. Uh, 
uh, connect with God in prayer and to, for God to hear what he had to say, but he knew he had to approach in this humble state and that his prayer was, was heartfelt. And that, so he, three weeks worth of, and I've never done that. You know, do I have anything that moves my heart that far to where I, you know, just put aside everything else and focus on God hearing what I have to say and my pouring my heart out to him and praying that he will give me what I should be asking for, what I should be saying to him. And I think if I ever get there, I think it'll probably be well worth having done it. And so I, I hope I will get there and I hope I'll get there soon. Let's see. Kind of got ahead of myself here just yakking. But anyways, well, let's look at, uh, here's the, and that's another thing that was amazing about this study. I should have seen this sooner maybe, but as I look back this time around studying, Ezra documents this this return in detail. It's amazing. And so in Ezra, chapter 1, 1 says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so again, we, I just love how it keeps tying everything together. And the more you look into and study these Old Testament scriptures, God has tied it all together. And you start just getting this picture in your mind about what he has done and what he's done in the past to fulfill prophecy. And I, so uh, Ezra 1, 1 says, First year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and that's, you know, that's what we usually require. If you have something official is going to happen, you got to have it in writing. And so he did. He had it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven. And so here's this Gentile king giving Yahweh the credit for what's going on here, that he had spoken to him in fulfillment of God's word through Jeremiah. And it's like, it's amazing. And so he says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He's taken responsibility for the Jews going back and building the temple in Jerusalem. Whoever is there among you of all his people, he's talking to the Jews here, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." So there was the decree that said, go for it. You know, you guys go back. You can go back and we, uh, did I? Yeah, I put a map there. So we had looked at this before. So they're in Babylon. They got to go back to Judah. So they're going to, he says, go ahead and go. And so they have to trek back to Jerusalem to start building. It turns out that there was about 50,000. And if you go further into Ezra, it just documents by tribe and by by uh, family and numbers, you can add it up and it adds up to a little over 50,000. That includes servants and, and others to go back with them and, you know, with the livestock and everything else, about 50,000. So that pretty good size group goes back. But then, uh, whoops, there we go. Here is in Ezra, but then a couple chapters later, two years later in time, after they had started going back, it says, Then the people of the land, the Sumerians, discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. 
and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And that's not the Darius of chapter 6, but it's later Darius as it goes further uh, into the future. So uh, it frustrated them all those days from building. It stopped the, it stopped the building. So they went back, and so it's possible that that could have been the reason for Daniel's mourning. He probably, as a high official in Babylon, had access to reports. He knew what was going on there. He was able to track how things were going in Jerusalem, and Cyrus wanted him to go, so it wasn't like he was going to hide what was going on there. So it's possible, because it says that uh, in the third year of Cyrus, and so that's the same, that's the same time frame here, it says... Um, well, let's see, I thought I saw it there. But anyway, the first year of Cyrus, and right, two years later, that would have been the third year of Cyrus, coincides with the same time frame of Daniel praying and wondering and mourning because, you know, something's going on that's making his heart hurt for his people. And so it's possible that that was what was going on there. And it says, you know, he wasn't just a little irked about it. He was mourning about that. And so that that shows that his heart, again, is cares deeply about what's going on with God's Word, with His plan, with His people. And that I want that. I want that for myself. I want that for us, that we, our hearts, are, are open to each other. And we, we've talked about this year and looking forward to it. And I, my prayer is that that will be more and more our heart for each other as we uh, live and walk in the truth and you know fellowship and live with each other that 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 heart will be there in us like Daniel had he he cared deeply about what was gone and would pray about it and and again just for myself as well that instead of making prayer the last thing I do that to start with that and let that be an uh, everyday serious part of how I'm going to live my life on these days forward. It's a it's an amazing time we're in, but it's also going to be a very trying time and we'll need to live in a in a prayer attitude with God. He tells us to. So okay, we'll keep going. Verse four says, on the twenty fourth day of the first month, and that's the month Abib in the Hebrew calendar. I still don't know those by heart, but that's that's what it is. Abib, which later became Nisan, it was renamed uh, while I was b- by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, and his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words uh, like the sound of a tumult. <clears throat> and I think... It's probably, uh, Daniel's probably there in person. We're talking about visions and some of the, in the past visions, Daniel wasn't really there in Elam. But in that case, he had gone in the spirit. God had given him the vision of, of that, what's going on there. But here, most likely he was in, along the bank of the Tigris. And so I had copied this again. Uh, if you look up there by Babylon, the Euphrates goes right through Babylon. We, I think, had talked about that in the in the defeat of Babylon. They diverted that river because they had a they had a diversion that went through Babylon for a water source. So the Euphrates, Euphrates is right there, but the Tigris is also quite close to Babylon. It would have been 
maybe a couple days journey for Daniel to have been up there on some kind of official business. So he probably was there by the bank of the Tigris when he had this vision. And so then he said he, he looked up his, and had this, this uh, amazing vision of this person, and he calls him a certain man. And so my kind of conviction of what this is would be that this was a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. It is so close to, and th- <laughs> this is kind of funny because it's, it's not a very solid piece of evidence, but I've just looked up artwork that different artists have interpreted uh, the vision to be, and the one in Daniel 10, and then the one in Revelation chapter 1. And so that's, that's not proof, of course, of anything, but it's just as an artist's interpretation of what he, he would see and what he would paint or, or create out of that turns out to be very close. What's more important is the, the comparison of the scriptures to each other, and so I'd put those together with each other there. Revelation 1, 13 through 15, uh, when you read the comparison there, it says, and in the middle of the lampstands, and this is talking about Jesus Christ and, and John's vision of him, in the middle of the lampstands, like one like a son of man, and Daniel says, a certain man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, a certain man dressed in linen, girded across his chest with a golden sash, and in Daniel, a belt of pure gold, um, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And, and same, same uh, wording in Daniel, his eyes were like flaming torches. His feet like burnished bronze, uh, feet like the gleam of polished bronze in Daniel, and voice in revelation of Christ, uh, his voice like the sound of many waters, and then the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. So, again, it doesn't state that this is Jesus, but, you know, I like to compare Scripture with Scripture, and, and God's Word has meaning, and so when you compare and look, um, I don't think it's a stretch to have that be a vision of Jesus, and it doesn't say that there was only one being that came to Daniel. So I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. It's not something to fight over, but... My conviction is that that was Jesus, a vision of Jesus to Daniel in order to, and kind of like John, it was to, to impress him, to, to strike like a holy fear into him, to show the authority that, that this being has to tell him to write the message and to record it and that you're going to have a vision, uh, be prepared for that. I mean, so the, 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 the mission of this being is similar when Christ came to John in the Revelation. So I think there's adequate evidence to, to come down on that if, you, if your heart takes you to there that this, and I believe it is Christ, and that it's a, the result. And I just went to these, these verses further on then. So this is the result of the vision of Jesus by, or of of both. It's the, the result of John and his vision, and it's pretty much in one, well, two phrases there in Revelation 1.17. When I saw uh, him, Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And so that's, that's what happened to John. And it's pretty succinct, pretty short, precise. And then in uh, Daniel, we see, uh, I was left alone, saw this great vision, no strength was left in me for any, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor. I retained no strength, 
I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Well, we know in Revelation, John didn't die. So it's a very, very similar result uh, to the to the presence of these two beings fell down like a dead man. I didn't do probably enough research to see some of the some of the reaction to some other angels. Um, but the there's other there's other instances in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord and that particular and precise phrase is pre-incarnate Jesus in the burning bush of Moses to to uh uh, Joshua before Jericho, and so these these visions still strike terror into whoever sees this being, this person, like Jesus. So at, at any rate, the, a vision of this these beings, and I, I guess part of what I want to get across tonight was the the work of angels in God's program. They they play a huge part. They're working behind the the spiritual scene that we can't see. And so we we kind of go along with our lives thinking that you know, you know this is all that's going on right here. Um, you know, there's something something in my mind about heaven. God is up there somewhere, and I'm here, and I'm in reality, and I'm living my life. You know, just what it is. Someday I'll see God. I hope. And but this this gives us a glimpse into the reality of what's going on in God's world, and it's not just here. The spiritual world. Is, is coupled up with our world in a way that we just can't see. But God has said that Satan is the God of this world. He's, he has said that Jesus, again in the temptation, uh, Satan brought him up to, the, to the, all the kingdoms of the world and said, worship me uh, and I'll give these all to you. You can, you can run them under me would be the... the the order of things, obviously Jesus said, forget that. Those weren't his words, but he did not do that. He didn't. He said, worship God only and him you will serve. So he did not go for that, but it does say that, that Satan and his angels, these fallen angels, and could be a third of all the angels that were in heaven fell with him. They're here at work in, in some way or other that we don't understand fully and know, but they are. And as we as we go on, we'll see a little bit more about that. <clears throat> okay. Um, in seven again, it says, "I Daniel alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves." And again, that that reminds me, and I would probably remind you if you're a Bible student that. It sounds like Saul, who was then became Paul, the apostle, kind of his encounter, that he, the vision of Jesus came, the words came to him, but the ones that were with him didn't see anything, but they were just terrified. There was a spiritual presence. They knew it was there. They felt it. They were, they were, it wasn't like, oh, cool. I want to see this. It was like, ah, I got to get out of here. I'm, I'm afraid. And so they were terrified of this spiritual power there, and I think uh, it has to do with holy angels represent the holy God. And so their presence does not invite sinful man to come up and, and you know, have a little happy conversation. It's, 
it's terrifying to us sinners in the world to encounter these beings because they are holy and powerful. And so they ran. They, and so I was left alone, saw this great vision, no strength. And so this was his response. And he fell to the ground on his face. And so, so help number one that I looked at in the outline there was here in verse 10. It says, Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So I called that help number one. But again, that kind of, to me, makes a division there because it doesn't say the hand of the being that was there. It just says a hand. So it's not, it doesn't exactly identify this being the hand that touched him with the being of it before. So that's, I feel like I, that's what's caused me to think, well, there's a break here. It could be another angel that's now come to, to finish the encounter with Daniel. So the, again, they, humans that encounter these beings always are terrified. And so, uh, same with Daniel. Uh, I would say this vision just about killed him. I mean, it knocked him to the ground, knocked him unconscious just to be in his presence. And so in verse 11, we'll continue. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have been sent to you. So God sent this angel for Daniel's benefit. It's only God that does the sending. They don't come on their own. They haven't decided and looked at Daniel and thought, oh, he needs some help. God sends the angels. Hebrew says they are sent out from God to help believers. So I came in response to your words, the angel said. Verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come to give you an understanding what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Again, so we're given a clue here that these, this vision is going to contain information that is, that is pertinent to the very last days of this age. It doesn't mean the end of everything, the end of the universe, and the you know nothing after that. It just means in God's timing of things, this age is talking about the end of this age that we're still in, the time of that end, the days yet future. But so the minute that Daniel had committed himself to three weeks of prayer and that denial of comfort to know God's heart, the angel was sent to Daniel to give him an answer. And I, one, of the, one of the texts that I studied about it said it was an it encouragement to continue to pray, that uh, we shouldn't give up praying. That you know, we pray for a day and we don't get what we want. It's like, ah, I'll forget it then. He wants us to continue on. He wants us to be diligent to continue in prayer and uh, so we get a, a glimpse into that um, again that this that this world exists outside of our world and it's being run by the chief the liar in chief if you want to call him that the dragon satan he's real he's a real and deadly menace who would like to kill every one of us uh, it's only God's protection that keeps that from happening because He is the ruler of all the realms, including uh, the realm of the fallen angel demons. Sometimes we might get the idea that, that Satan ha is sovereign over his kingdom and he gets to do whatever he wants and God's having to react. and That's not so. God is in total control of every part of His creation. And when you think about that, you, God existed 
all alone with nothing, and he created, and that's why everything is here. Everything that we see and everything that we hear about in the Word of God was created by God. Everything. There, there was nothing until he said so, and everything that there is is here now because of his creative power. And in fact, it's the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator, even of these beings. So uh, Jesus Christ is the uncreated one. It's not a match between Jesus and Satan. That's, that is not a match. Jesus doesn't even have to give the time of day to that. It's a match, if anything, if there is a matchup, and even if there is one one, is some kind of a matchup between Michael and Satan. Michael is God's archangel. Satan was the head angel before he fell and sinned. Those two might be a match and the holy angel is still going to win and we know that that's true from the revelation that they fight and Michael throws him down. I mean that's but that's the matchup. It's not Jesus and Satan. No way. Colossians is a wonderful letter in the New Testament. I was glad to hear um, Brent talking out of that this morning. But Colossians 1, 13 to 17, kind of a touchstone passage about Christ. For he, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so that's going to be the antecedent for all the rest of these statements in the next verses. In whom, in his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, he is, and that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the prototokos, the 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 pro, the first one of all these things, overall in power and rank. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. And those, I think all conservative commentators would talk about those being ranks of fallen angels. And so there, even these things that exist out there in opposition to God, these were created by God and allowed for his purposes. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So it's just a blanket statement that covers everything, that Jesus Christ is in charge of and holds everything together like it is. If, if he wouldn't want to hold it together, we wouldn't exist right now. If he decided to let it all loose, we would cease to exist this instant. The reason that we're here and the reason that we can continue to exist and that we will be with him forever as he has promised all hinges on his attributes, his faithfulness, his truth, and his power. All of our life in the future and forever depends on him. He holds it together, not just now, but forever. It's Jesus Christ and his power that's going to hold all the ages together He's going to hold us together for eternity. He's promised that we will be in his presence in our, in our body, in a new body, but a conscious stream that is who we are right now will be with him forever because he holds it together. So we praise him for that. So some of these angels are associated with deception and wicked control of cities, nations, and of the world. So we see Specifically in that text there, talking about the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And so this battle in verse 13 talks about uh, the prince of Persia and Michael coming to help. 
and that it's possible that this, this prince of Persia was hoping to stop God's people from continuing on and doing what God wanted this to happen in that kingdom. And that Michael's presence and his help may have contributed to the good result that came in Persia from, from uh, God's work through the Jews in Persia. It's not stated there, but it does say that Michael come and he what he did helped the situation. And so again, we don't understand everything there is to know about what goes on in this spirit world, but it does affect our world. It's not totally separated. It affects what's going on here. We, we had a great session in VBS this year, and it was centered on spiritual warfare. And I thought that was awesome to bring to these kids. And just thinking back on that and having talked to them all week long about the realities of God's kingdom and the, the need for us to put on this armor. And that's not just for kids, that's for sure. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, and world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And so we're not struggling against people. And so the the weapons that we use can't be people weapons they can't so how how do we battle something that's spiritual that we can't see but it says we need to struggle against them and we need to put armor on it has to be spiritual it has to do with prayer and the word of god to know what he says to put on truth salvation know that we know jesus christ know that we're in in christ and Satan, no matter how you want to break it down, he wants to deceive people into not being in Christ. That is where our power comes from. We can't be in Christ unless we have cried out to Jesus Christ, the true Jesus, to come and to save us and to give us that life. We can't fight this spiritual battle that this chapter kind of gives us an insight into. It doesn't give any prophecy per se, but it's a whole chapter on getting ready to hear what God has to say about the future in the end of this book. But it's to be prepared spiritually to struggle and do battle against this unseen world. And we can't do it by prepping uh, and with weapons and everything. They have a place in a certain realm, but not in this realm. This is a spiritual battle that we need to engage in through prayer and through knowing the Word of God. We have to go there. And so even as we look at that, though, and think, yeah, I'm going to go do battle. I'm ready now. We have to be wise to heed the attitude we'd have uh, toward these powerful beings. To struggle against them still demands an attitude of humility, knowing that they're much more powerful than we are. A couple verses here just to talk about that. Michael, so we say the, the archangel, the head angel, the most powerful angel of God, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. So us making state, statements against Satan, statements against angels, making these, I, I don't, 
think that that's what Scripture teaches us to do. We have to be humble to know that only God can protect us from these things. And so Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't rebuke this, the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men, and these would be false teachers, revile the things that they don't understand. They don't get it about the power that's involved in this spirit world, thinking that they have all this power. And we don't. We don't have any power except to live in Christ, to be strong in Him according to the Scriptures. He will protect us, but that's the only way we have protection. And by the things that which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So these are unbelievers, but false teachers trying to teach wrong teaching about how we're going to battle against spiritual forces. We need to do it God's way, not the way of false teachers that would give railing rebukes to, to spiritual beings. First uh, John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So that's acknowledged in Scripture that the unsaved world is under the power of Satan. <coughs> excuse me, of Satan, the evil one. God has allowed it for unbelievers, the rejectors of Christ and of the gospel, to be under control of Satan. The world thinks that they're free, free to do whatever they want, think whatever they want, quit telling me about Scripture, I'm free to believe whatever I want. Satan has them so deceived into the, these ideas of ungodliness, they I don't have a clue where they are how much danger they are in without Christ. That they think they're all okay and that everything's good. And that they're walking along in their life, no problem. They are in a dangerous, dangerous situation without Christ. They, and if you hear this, if you're not in Christ, believe me, you aren't walking on your own, in your own power to do whatever you want. You're being deceived by the evil one. He's got you under his control, and you need out. And Jesus Christ is the only way out of that. I think the other thing I love, again, as I talked about the history of Daniel, and we're, yeah, some of this I think I'm just going to finish reading out, but the, I, it's important, I think, to realize that the teaching in this world, and especially as it's, it's, it's touched our young people, is to disconnect us from history to say that history means nothing. These, these truths out of the book of Daniel and out of the, the word of God about the past only mean anything if history means something and if God created everything and he's got a stream of reality that's going to fulfill somewhere. Evolution has tried to, to deceive all of us and kids into thinking that there was no beginning. It was all a chance happening with nowhere to go. And so what point does history have? Why, do we, why would we care about history if it, if it just came by chance? What good is it going to do me? But it's, that is a lie. And history, that, as, and when I got saved, I started getting a heart for history. You think, oh, history, that's so boring. But when you connect history to God and what he has done in the world, it gets amazing and exciting and even as you look back and go, oh, Daniel, that's some dry book in the past. Oh, he's told the future to Daniel. He's told it to us. So 2,500 years ago, he said these things, and they are alive. 
and they are in our future, maybe our near future, as he's told us. What a waste to have looked at this and go, ah, uh, I, I have other things to do. I, I want to go read the newspaper or the, you know, I want to get online and read a bunch of cool stuff there. What, what a waste when we have God's amazing word about the future here right in front of us to read and know. <clears throat> All right, so we want to keep going here. Verse 15, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. Again, another uh, when the angel encounter comes along and he tells him a little bit more about what he's doing, bam, it goes down again. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Uh, and it kind of seems like a different being here when he talks about it than the first one. But anyway, I'm making my own case here. I'm, a, I'm trying not to uh, infuse anything of my own in here, but it just seems like it could be a different being. I opened my mouth, spoke to him, and said, who is standing before me, O oh, my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. So it just sucks the energy out of someone uh, next to one of these beings. For such a servant of my Lord, talk with such as my Lord. How can I even talk to you? I'm just so far below you in power. As for me, there remains just now no strength nor any breath left in me. And this one with the human appearance, touched me again and strengthened me. So a second time, a second help for him to be ready to receive what we will be looking at in the, in the weeks to come. So again, he's at a collapse. He's overwhelmed by the, the encounter. And this one who resembles a, a human being touches his lips. It kind of remain, reminds you of Isaiah when he is in an encounter with, with God in his throne room. So a second touch, again, Daniel gets enough strength to, to carry on a little further. And in verse 19, uh, the angel says, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. And now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So a third time he gets help and strength from this angelic being. And then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? but I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. So again, he ties this statement to reality, talking about, and he, he ties together the spiritual world with the real world, talking about Persia and Greece, and how the angelic world is affecting those, and he has to go and fight for God's purposes to be accomplished in our world. So it, this chapter is just a tie and a look at spiritual versus our world. And it ties it together and shows us that there's, there's great work going on in, the, in parts that we can't even see. However, I tell you, verse 21, that I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So uh, there's, it leaves some mystery here about, you know, how does that all work? Why couldn't a God sent more angels to, he's the only one. So he kind of just shortchanged them a help. And so only Michael, I don't know the answer to that. Those are God's things. He, he knows what he's got going on there. So it's just, it's a revelation to us about what's going on. But if you're going to have to have somebody to help you, Michael wouldn't be a bad helper. He'd be like number one man. Be better than having, you know, 
the guy below me come and help me, but no, he sent Michael, who is, who is the awesome prince. So it takes three times of strengthening, uh, and I guess for us, we need the Lord's help in our life to, to fulfill what he has for us to do. He's got a mission for each one of us. I think that is our purpose, is to find out what that is. I mean, there, the Word of God is the same, and it's true for everyone. Everyone who believes is saved. But gifts and callings and purposes God has for each one of us. And it's up to us to put the effort out in prayer and in meditation and study of the Word and just asking God to guide us into what He wants for us to do. It doesn't mean it has to be some gigantic, you know, world-altering purpose, but just whatever that is, that we would listen and look in the Scriptures to find what that is for us. We can't do anything in our Christian life without Jesus. And we know these passages here, but I'll just close with this. In John 15, 5, it says, I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So with him, we can do a lot of things. Without him, we can't do anything. Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. So first of all, it's about Jesus working in us. Second of all, it's having reverence for God and having a right heart and attitude. If you do anything uh, kind of public for God, you're going to learn that humility is absolutely essential. A lot of things come your way that in that realm when you start dealing with people that you better learn how to be humble before God because he's he'll teach it to you but it's it's it is so necessary and it's so wonderful that he gives us that instruction in scripture so that we know in advance it can be a little easier on us if we listen to what God says and do it that way and Philippians 2 3 says do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. I have a tough time with that one. I, I tend to have, have let me be the most important thing in my life. Um, so I need help from God. I need to abide in the, the, the uh, in Christ since uh, I am the vine. I need Him to help me along with that to live that kind of life. It's, it's a supernatural life that you can only live in the power of the Spirit because I guarantee, I've seen my flesh, I know it wants to live with me in charge of everything. And, and really, God tells the truth, I can't do anything. I'll end up just doing nothing that way. I, I might think I'm doing a bunch of cool stuff, but it, it'll be nothing. It'll be worth nothing. And I don't want that. I want God to guide and strengthen me. I want, him, I want that for you all. Whoever listens here, that is the, that's the blessed way of life, is to be walking with God and hearing what He has to say. That is the best. So we want that. So that, this whole chapter is an insight into that unseen realm that affects what goes on in the world that we can see. So we're wrestling with these unseen forces. That's who we're doing battle against. We had uh, some election stuff going on. It opened my eyes to a few things. But what was going on behind that, the Scripture said, is spiritual forces at work. 
And so we just need to can pray and to continue in all these things. Any, any leadership of the country or anything else, there's forces at work that only prayer and meditation and listening to God will, will work at. Now we'll just, this last verse is the one that we read before, and it's to put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He has schemes. We won't know what they are, but God can enlighten us if we listen to him. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, forces of the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's a reality that only a believer can know. The world doesn't have a clue about that, but we do, and we know who God is, and we know how we can allow him to work through us. So let's, let's do that. Lord, thank you so much again for your word, how it, um, you know, we'd like to sometimes jump ahead and go, oh, let's look at the exciting things about prophecy and what's going to happen. And But you, uh, as we look at your whole counsel, as we look at everything you have to say in your word, you you tell us things that we need to know along the way. We need to know this, Lord, as we as we desire to walk with you, as we desire to work for you, and to be courageous and to uh, react rightly to the world with humility and gentleness in in the face of anger and uh, name calling or whatever else comes along. Only you, God, and as we abide in you, can you help us to continue to walk in a way that pleases you. We look at Jesus, what he did. We see the tremendous amount of abuse, Lord, that you took and you didn't lash out. You had the power to destroy anyone who acted that way toward you, the disrespectful, wicked um, things that were brought against you, but you didn't. You fulfilled your purpose. So help us with that, Lord. Help us to walk in the Spirit like you did so that this life can be lived that way. We praise you and thank you for it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name.